0: We'll Continue our worship uh, by looking to the Word of God. And uh, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me uh, to our pastor this morning. Our pastor this morning is Luke twenty-two forty-seven to sixty-five. Luke twenty-two forty-seven to sixty-five. It was a wonderful weekend uh, last week. Uh, Last weekend, just celebrating the the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, th- hopefully you had an opportunity to join us, whether online, virtually, or uh, whether in person. At either, at either our indoor service as, uh, that's on Saturdays, as well as our outdoor service that's on Sundays. And it's always a joy uh, to worship together with God's people and to have fellowship with the saints. And so I hope that... Uh, uh, as uh, many of you may be just uh, have opportunity to join us we we would love to have you join us especially if you can as you more and more people are getting vaccinated if you feel comfortable uh, with you and your life situation uh, we would love to see you in person and to be able to join with us and so uh, luke 22 47 uh, through 65 we'll read the the text within the sermon this morning let's let us pray Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the perfect Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And the one in whom we stand, in whom our sins are forgiven, in whom we have a hope of eternal life forever with you. Thank you, God, for Jesus. Thank you, then. None of our, uh, uh, none of, uh, our sins are, are uh, charged against us any longer. Uh, they evolve in charge to Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, that he was willing to come and suffer and die Uh, on the cross for our sins thank you god for your perfect wisdom and your your compassion your perfect justice in fulfilling and uh, satisfying your whole your your uh, holiness and justice but also uh, demonstrating your mercy and love Abundant Father are your grace towards us, is your grace towards us, and we thank you and we praise you. And as we look to your word, help us to see more of this glorious character uh, that you may have manifest in Jesus, your son. Help us to once again be uh, confronted with who Jesus is, what he, is what, he, uh, what he did and what he said, and that we, uh, your people, would, uh, would respond in love. In, in worship, and that we would magnify uh, His name and your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's an old familiar hymn uh, and that goes, uh, and you probably know it, uh, it, goes something, it goes like this. On a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. And I love that old cross where the dearest and best for a world of lost sinners was slain. As we have mentioned earlier, last week we celebrated Good Friday in Easter when we remember the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ for our sins. And when we think of the old rugged cross or even the cross behind me now. The cross reminds us of Christ's death for our sins. And we sing about it in our songs. We probably speak about it in our in our lit with our lips. We think about it. We and when we think and sing in, uh, about it, we, we think of it generally in a positive way. Uh, we we sing, oh, how I, I love the old rugged cross. We think, oh, the power of the cross. I glory in the cross. So we, we we just we exalt the Lord in in, in the cross. But sometimes I feel when we do that, we forget that we're we're actually the the cross is as the song say, states, an emblem that is a symbol of suffering and shame. When Jesus died on the cross, he did not die with feelings of exaltation from his followers. There was no glorying. There was no praising. There was no worshiping. It was a scene of of death. It was a scene of, of suffering, agonizing, shameful death. And that is what Jesus bore when he went to the cross. And in today's passage, we begin to see Christ's suffering and shame it's, it will t- begin on this, this Thursday evening, early Friday morning that leads all the way to his crucifixion on the cross. It will, this, this passage progresses through his betrayal, his arrest, and his mockery. Eventually, it will lead to his trials and a judgment and a. Cr- rejection, and crucifixion. And when we consider that Jesus suffered and endured all this suffering and shame willingly, it compels us who hear, who read, who look at the scriptures to respond. Will I receive him Will, for who he is? Or will I reject him as one to be scorned and mocked? What does this passage say about who Jesus is? It says something very powerfully about who he is, but how do I respond to that? From here on out, the gospel, in the gospel of Luke, Jesus is going to endure the suffering and shame of of the rejection of sinful men throughout instead of a but yet throughout it all jesus is not a helpless man he's not helpless oh just being dragged around a helpless sufferer even though outwardly it looks that way rather we will see him as a humble servant fulfilling the will of god to save us from our sins now in the previous passage, Jesus has been, been praying and had been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'd been wrestling with the, the agony of facing his death on the cross, but even probably mostly he'd been facing the agony of facing of being separated from God when the wrath as the wrath of God is poured out upon him on the cross. Yet, remember how he prayed? This terrible thing that he's about to face, and he prays to in agony and distress to the Father, yet not my will, but yours be done. All that He is about to face is the Father's will. And Jesus knows it. And He willingly submits to it. Jesus literally and figuratively faces the hour and power of darkness. And in our passage, we observe that uh, today in uh, these brief verses three actions, three points, three actions of sinful men that Jesus willingly endured that magnify Him As the humble messianic servant who submits to the will of the Father. Three actions that I put the outline there three actions of sinful men that Jesus willingly endured that magnify him, that compel us to recognize him as the humble messianic servant who submits to the will of the Father. And that that should cause us to worship him. So let's take a look then at these three uh, kind of three scenes, three actions of sinful men that Jesus willingly endures. The suffering and shame. So, number one, we find in verse 47 to 53 that Jesus willingly endured his betrayal. That Jesus is betrayed in verse 47 to 53. I'll read uh, 47 to 53 all in its totality. Luke, Luke 22, 47 53. While he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came And the one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preceding them. And he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come against him, Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now Jesus, we see here, was in the middle or in the context of praying. He had just spent the last hour or two praying to the Father. And then, while his disciples had failed to actually heed his instructions for themselves to pray that they might not enter into temptation, and so he had been admonishing them, and it was in that context that, when all of a sudden, the crowds come, a crowd of people arrive, and at the front of the crowd is, oh, it's, it's Judas. Judas is scared. He had somehow, um, uh, he had, he had, he had, uh, he had gone off, and now he was coming with a crowd. You recall back in chapter 22, verse 21, Jesus had revealed that one of his own disciples, one of the 12, one of those who were seated, at the Passover meal with him, was going to betray Jesus that night. And we learned that even earlier, that Judas had, um, had bargained with the chief priests, the religious leaders, to betray Jesus. We were told elsewhere that he betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. And so during the meal, Judas had left to go and betray Jesus, but now he was returning, and Luke, as he describes this, particularly marks off that this is what that Judas is leading the crowd, and he was particularly one of the twelve and it, by putting that there by staying in this way, he emphasized the, the the close relationship that this Judas has with Jesus. it emphasizes even more the treachery that is involved this is someone 's close to you, this is like your family member. This is like one of your close uh, relatives. This is like one of your uh, close associates betraying you. This is no mere disciple, not just the massive crowds who follow Jesus here and there. It is one of the 12, one of those whom Jesus especially chose to come and follow him and be fishers of men. He had heard Jesus. He had seen Jesus do all that he did. He had been provided for by Jesus. He had served Jesus. He had eaten with Jesus. And now he was going to betray Jesus. The sting of betrayal is intensified because this is one of Jesus' closest disciples. Jesus is now Judas is now leading a crowd of, of religious leaders, guards, along with their guards and elders of, of Jerusalem. These were the very ones who in elsewhere in Luke we've seen, these were the ones looking to kill Jesus, to oppose him. The sting of betrayal is also intensified because of the method in which Judas betrays Jesus. In fact, uh, Mark tells us in his parallel account that Judas had arranged to to identify Jesus by kissing him on the cheek. And it was common in Jesus' days that disciples would would kiss their teachers as a a greeting, even on their hand or on their cheek. And so it wouldn't have been unusual for Judas to to, uh, kiss Jesus. He'd probably done it many times before. What kind of is interesting is that the word for kiss is actually the Greek word that we also will translate as the verb to love. It's just that a kiss is an act of love. When they tell one another to greet one another with a holy kiss, it's like to greet one another with an act of love. A kiss is a sign of love. It's an affectionate love. Judas here was ironically betraying Jesus with a sign of affection and love and to Judas this scheme was perfect because Jesus, he thought maybe Judas would, Jesus would not suspect and it would give enough time for them the guards to, to seize Jesus before he could run away but Jesus was not going to run away Jesus is not a helpless victim He's neither is he ignorant of, G, of Judas's scheme just even the, the tense of the verbs here indicates that just as Judas approaches and before kissing Jesus, enacting his scheme, Jesus reveals Judas's plan to him. When he says, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? Jesus knows. Even at this point, uh, Jesus knows all that is in the heart of Judas. And even with, by saying this, it, it's, it's an act of mercy. offers one last loving reproof to Judas to turn. And what he does, what's more, is he, he, he verbally calls out Judas for his sin. And Judas's sin is many, but Judas's sin here is one of hypocritical love. He's betraying Jude, Jesus with a kiss. Now, lest we judge Judas too harshly, let's remember that we too can be guilty of hypocritical love as well yes we are to love God yes we are to love our neighbors as ourselves And most, but most of us especially as we get older we're good at showing a, a hypocritical kind of love a fake love we can even do it at church we can come to church and we can be kind to people and greet one another and say hi, how are you doing brother, how are you doing sister but then when we get home we, we slander we're malign, we criticize we, we gossip, we judge one another and that's not loving that's a hypocritical love and of course, it's not easy to love everyone. We may not like everyone, but still, we're called to love. But God wants us to have, when we love, as we love one another, an unhypocritical love. Romans twelve nine says, "Let love be without hypocrisy." The fact that the scripture has to say that tells us that it's not uncommon. Oftentimes, our love is insincere. Is your love for others insincere? Is it, is it fake? Is it just a, a, a show? Or is it a sincere reflection of your love for God? Or worse, not just your love for others, but your love for God. Is your love for God a hypocritical love like Judas's? Judas was good at faking love for Jesus. He had done so for three years. And eventually, he got so good at it, he eventually betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And while Jesus willingly endured the betrayal by one of his own disciples, Meanwhile, the other disciples respond in a quite a different manner. In verse 49, disciples were ready to take up swords. They said, Should we use our swords, Lord? They want to fight with swords. They want to defend Jesus, they want to defend their lives. They asked a question, notice, but they don't need to wait for Jesus to answer. One of them is so is so zealous, he strikes at one of the one of the servants of the high priest who was nearby, and in the attack, he slices off the man's Right ear. Only Luke, by the way, Dr. Luke, kind of specifically notes that, meaning he knows these kind of little details. Now Luke doesn't identify who this zealous disciple is, but we know because John tells us. <laughs> John tells us in his gospel that this was Peter. And it just fits with Peter's uh, always uh, eager, always zealous kind of persona, personality. You know, in fact, Luke, uh, John tells us what's well, more that he even tells us the name of the servant. And the servant's name is Malchus. But the fact that Peter cuts off the ear of the slave tells us that he was likely aiming for the head of this servant. That is, Peter was going to kill. you ever been so angry you want to kill someone? Maybe you won't want to admit it, but I don't know if I've felt that way at times. That's the anger, that, the sinful kind of anger that man has. That's what kind of anger Peter has at this moment. He, he sinfully wants to kill this man who's going to arrest Jesus. He was looking to kill in Jesus' name. But while Judas and the others came to arrest him like a criminal, and while Peter acted like a criminal, Jesus behaved like no criminal ever. Jesus not only commands Peter to stop, he's got got it all wrong when it comes to the matter of God's kingdom, but then Jesus does something miraculous. Something shocking. He he miraculously heals Malchus' ear. I don't know how he does it. But he maybe touches it. Maybe um, he just says it. But he heals Malchus' ear. Then, verse 52, Jesus responds to those who came to arrest him in the middle of the night. Verse 52, he points out that the obvious... Uh, implication of so many who were who were basically coming with swords and clubs. He says that basically what you are coming as treating me like a robber. They treated him like one who is one who is one of those uh, vagabonds who would kind of s- sit by the side of the road and kind of hide by the side of the road, waiting for uh, uh, people, travelers to come and then kind of mm-hmm. jump upon them and, and steal their things and beat them up. Obviously, those kind of robbers. That the ter- term is used here of would be considered armed and dangerous, and so that's why uh, these, these, uh, uh, and that 's why swords and clothes would be necessary for those kind of people, but Jesus is no criminal. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus does not support seeking up sword to defend himself, he does not support killing in his name. In fact, Jesus allows for his betrayal and arrest he knows. It must happen. He submits again to the Father's will. And what's more, he explains. What is that taking place? Verse 53, While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. He points out that here they are. They they come in the darkness of night. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. He points out just their own, their hypocrisy. They had many opportunities, religious leaders, to arrest Jesus when he was teaching daily in the temple this past week. The most public place in all of Jerusalem, they could have just kind of, they, he was in their temple. He could have, the temple guards were just standing around. He could just uh, go arrest that Jesus. But they did not seize him. Why? Because they were afraid of the crowds. But now, under the cover of darkness, they make their move. This is their hour to act. But notice they don't act alone. The power of darkness is also theirs, according to Luke. Only Luke is the, one, Luke's the only one who mentions this. this uh, what Luke implies by this phrase, the power of darkness, or when Jesus says the power of darkness are yours, is that Satan himself is at work in this very moment. Just as Satan had entered into Judas to betray Jesus back in uh, verse 3, so now Satan was also at work in the religious leaders to arrest Jesus. In fact, Luke, elsewhere in Acts 26, verse 18, he, he will write of darkness, he will compare and symbolize darkness as a symbol of Satan's dominion. Look that up uh, when you have time. And so the power of darkness, so the, the authority of darkness, the dominion of darkness, this is a reference to Satan. This was Satan's hour. <clears throat> Satan was working his power in, in, not only in Judas, but in the religious leaders. And this was all under the cover of a literal darkness. But it was also, if you will, a metaphysical, spiritual darkness of Satan and his forces. And yet, while this is this explained, and yet Jesus submitted and endured himself through all this to the Father's will. Jesus submitted himself to God, endured his betrayal, endured his arrest, What does it say? What does it say to us when, when an innocent man is betrayed by his own and delivered into the hands of his enemies? And yet, while in that process, you, you think most people would say, no, I'm innocent. I didn't do anything. They might try to run away even. I have not harmed anyone. You know, they might claim their innocence, but he doesn't do any of that. He is silent, but in the process, if he does anything, he, he, not, he stops his disciples from killing anybody. He heals, and then on top of that, he heals his enemy. This is, this is just... it. This is full of irony. He's betrayed by his own disciple with a kiss. Treated like a criminal. And yet, the healing of his enemies as they arrest him. Either Jesus is the greatest fool that ever walked on earth. Or he is truly who he says he is. The messianic son of God and son of man. What else would explain how he behaves what else would explain how he conducts himself and you as you look at this this passage must come to a decision come to a choice is he the greatest fool that ever walked on the earth a madman a crazy insane guy or is he the messiah the son of God the son of man Jesus endured betrayal as part of his suffering and shame as he headed towards the cross. But the second action that evil men that evil men, uh, did against him or committed against him that Jesus endures is found in 54 to 62. And that's our second point. Not only is Jesus betrayed, but Jesus is also denied. Denied. He's denied. Verse 50, uh, 54 to 62. We read. Having arrested him, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a serving girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. But Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, While he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. How he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. We move from Jesus' betrayal and arrest to a few hours later, uh, to an, uh, the second event. These events are now taking place during uh, Jesus' many, one of many, Jesus' many trials. He acted as about, uh, by some accounts, six different trials. This is his trial before the high priest, the uh, high priest Caiaphas. And in it, we see the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction regarding Peter's denial. Remember, three times Peter, or three times Peter here is challenged to, to declare his relationship with Jesus, to, to, confess Jesus, that he is, he is, he knows Jesus, he belongs to Jesus, he is with Jesus. And each time Peter says, no, I am not. Each time Peter denies Christ. I'm gonna take a look at these, these quickly, these three denials. Denial number one takes place in verse 54 to 57. Jesus is arrested. He's brought to the house of the high priest. And according to John's Gospel, John actually knew the high priest. And so he, ha- he was able to get in along. He brought along Peter. They, into the, they entered into the courtyard. And many of those big, large homes would be, have a nice courtyard where they could gather. Sometimes they would have big banquets and feasts there. And as uh, they would have a... It was, out, it was an outdoor choir, so there would be a fire there. And it was cold in the middle of the night, so it was very cold but as Peter was warming himself by the fire, one of the servant girls recognized him. She saw her and said, This man was with him too. That is, the Jesus who was being interrogated in, uh, by one, the high priest at this time. And the accusation, probably when Peter heard these words, likely caused a fear in his heart. Certainly if they arrested Jesus, they're going to arrest his disciples too, Right? And what's more, what will they do when they find out that Peter is the actual one who had just cut off the right ear of the servant of the high priest? And so, out of fear, Peter responds, I did not know him. I did not know him. Uh, They're they saying, you was with him, but I don't know him. How could I be with him if I don't know him? I don't, I don't know who you're talking about, really. Denial number two is seen in, number 50, in verse 58. Another person, this is the time of a man, a man sees him and recognizes him, and, he's, and the man says, You are one of them too. You're one of them too. That is, you're one of those who follow Jesus. You're one of those disciples of Jesus, aren't you? You're, if in our days, usually you're a Christian, aren't you? And to this, Peter again denies Jesus. I am not. I am not. It's significant that the intensity of his denial also increases through these these uh, these various uh, these three denials. In his first denial, he denied knowing Jesus. I don't know who he is. Now he denies following Jesus. I'm not one of them. I'm not the, one of the followers, disciples of Jesus. And yet his denials aren't through. Denial number three recorded in verse 59 to 62. An hour had passed by this time and another recognized him. Another man recognizes Peter as being with Jesus because, well, because Peter was like a was a Galilee. They could tell. Now Matthew's account tells us that they could tell by, by their speech. They had a certain accent from in Galilee, the way they talked. And Peter and Jesus had the same kind of accent. So the gig is up for Peter. 3 times that's enough witnesses already in a court of law to count him guilty as one who is with Jesus who knows Jesus who is, who is part one of those Jesus followers so Peter responds again with a, a third denial he says I do not know what you're talking about I don't know what you're talking about you know that's how I might say it today I don't know you're just just talking something that makes no sense I don't know what you're talking about it makes no sense to me I'm not with that Jesus the man had identified Peter as being with Jesus because he was also a Galilean but Peter disavows any knowledge of being with Jesus and this, this stands out because this is in bold contrast to his claim earlier in the evening remember what he said? Lord with you I am ready to go to prison and to death with you Jesus I'm with you and wherever you go I'm with you you go to prison I'll go with you you go to death I'll go with you that's what it, that's a bold statement and we, we we kind of you know admire Peter he's got kind of a bold statement sometimes that's what we wouldn't say to Jesus we would like to say that, Lord Jesus I'm going to follow you with you and be with you wherever you go but now when push comes to shove when his life is on the line when accusations are all pointed at him as one of those Jesus followers one of those Christians one of those who are with Jesus one of those Galileans he flat out denies I don't know what you're talking about I don't know this Jesus. I'm not one of those Jesus followers. In fact, Mark's account tells us that Peter swore an oath. He he swore, not not cursing the way you think of, but he he swore an oath and said, "I don't even know Jesus." And I swear an oath, and he probably swore off something holy and said, "If you know, if I know this Jesus, may I be accursed?" Is what he was saying. But Peter was lying because he was afraid. He wanted to protect his own life. But yet, nevertheless, he denied Christ clearly, repeatedly, and strongly. Three times. And then a rooster crowed. And then a rooster crowed, and somehow in, in this courtyard, Jesus could see Peter, and Peter could probably see Jesus, probably was just at a distance or maybe at a at a, at a political place where the where the priest was interrogating Jesus and the Lord at that moment when the rooster crowed turns and looks at Peter Peter probably throughout this time was looking at Jesus Jesus was focused on the trials before him and now for the probably the first time in the evening Jesus turns his eyes towards Peter and you can just imagine if you, this is just a uh, the immense emotions that Peter Phil felt at this moment, he recalled, brought to back to his memory all the, the, the all that he had said about going to, with Jesus to death and to prison, and he remembers what Jesus said about him denying three times Jesus before the rooster crows, and there was just there can only be just as we would all feel <laughs> immense guilt and a feeling and a sense. A failure, I have failed Jesus I've denied him, and he runs out of the place, weeping bitterly. He had failed the Lord and denied him at the moment of Jesus' great need, and what is so sobering about this is that this is Not just average. This is not Judas. This is Peter. This is the apostle Peter, the same man when called by Jesus to follow me, left everything behind and followed him. The same man who declared to Jesus before anyone else that Jesus is the Christ. The same man who, apart from all the other disciples, said, "Asked Jesus to ask me to come to you, so I can walk on water to you." This was a man of great faith and great trust, great zeal, great passion for Jesus. And here he was in the, in this, in the middle of the night, with, under great fear, great temptation, he denied Jesus three times. He didn't do so because he planned to. It was, it was not a premeditated kind of thing. But it was a moment of fear and weakness. His desire to save his life preempted any allegiance to Christ at this moment. While understandable, it doesn't justify his sin. The thing for us to remember is that this could happen to you and me. If it can happen to Paul Superior, it can happen to you and me. We can deny Jesus too. It is a sin to deny Christ. Jesus had said in, in Luke 9, 23, 24, these instructions, these commands. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. See, followers of Christ are called by Jesus to, to deny ourselves not the Son of Man, as we take up the cross and follow Him. And what's more, He says elsewhere that to deny Him is a, is, carries with it a, a significant ramification. In Luke 12:8 8-9... Jesus says these words, And I say to you, Everyone who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will confess him also before the angels of God. That is in heaven. If you confess Jesus before men, Jesus was going to confess He's going to say, I know you, you're mine, before in the angels in heaven. But he, verse 9, He who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. If we deny Jesus here on this earth, when we, in heaven, before the angels of God, before God the Father's throne, He will deny ever knowing us. He will deny us just as we denied Him on earth. If you deny Christ, He will deny you. And that's, and that's the eternal ramifications of denying Christ. Now in day-to-day life, we may not face those life or death kind of deny or confess Christ moments. But nevertheless, every day is a day for us to deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Him, follow Jesus. Because when we're following Jesus, we are confessing Christ. But when we don't take up our cross, when we don't deny ourselves, when we say yes to our own sinful desires, when we are not willing to suffer to follow Jesus... And then at those moments, in effect, we are denying Christ. Let us learn, however, from Peter's failure, that in the right moment, in the right circumstances, we choose to deny Jesus too. Hopefully it is not a consistent pattern of our lives but in moments of darkness, the moments of fear, moments of great temptation, we may fall susceptible. It's, it can happen. And most likely, it will happen because we were not watching and praying. And that's why we fall into temptation. As Peter and his disciples had failed that night. And when we fail, we can learn from Peter and know that repentance and forgiveness, the No matter how great our sin, no matter how great our denial of Christ, no matter how many times we deny Christ, there is always a possibility of repentance and return to Christ because of Jesus, because of Christ, what He's done, because He suffered the, the, the cross for our sake. Let us not respond when we, when we fail when we deny Jesus. Let us never be like Jesus, Judas. Feel, oh, I'm such a sinner. Oh, I'm just a... And then just go run off and try to end the suffering by just killing our lives, by ending ourselves, or hiding from Jesus as Adam and Eve hid from God. None of those are the right responses. Only repentance, return to God. And casting ourselves upon the mercy of God is their repentance and forgiveness. In both cases... Jesus knew ahead of time that he would be betrayed by Judas and he would be denied by Peter. He knew both would happen and yet still Jesus willingly endured the suffering and shame. Why would he do that? Either he's a fool, a madman, or he is the Messiah. But his suffering and shame would get worse. The third and final action of sinful men that Jesus endured on the, and headed before, as he heads to the cross is that Jesus is mocked. Jesus is mocked in verse 63 to 65. Now we read on. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him. And were asking him, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who hits you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. Those holding Jesus is a reference to those the temple officers, the temple guards. And we see these uh, temple guards, and we see the cruelty, their cruelty in in these verses. They do two things primarily to Jesus. Number one, they were mocking him; they were ridiculing Jesus. They were were basically making a fool of Jesus. They were treating Jesus like he was a fool, someone to be fooled with, someone to be to be spit upon. Number two, not only they were mocking, but they did so while beating him. They were striking him. The tense of the verbs here, mocking and beating, indicate that it was a, it was a, this was not just a one-time punch, a one-time mockery. This was a continual mocking, a continual beating. In fact, Luke describes it completely uh, an instance of it where they were basically blindfolded Jesus, and then they were basically beating him on the face on the body and mocking him with these words prophesy you're a prophet who is the one who hit you what cruelty this man's bound he cannot see he's helpless and here they are beating him and mocking him they had probably heard that he was a prophet now they're mocking him as, for being so Mark tells us that they also spat on him, slapped him. But it wasn't just limited to the cruelty of physical and verbal abuse. There was many other things, that, according to Luke says, the many other things they were speaking against him. and Luke describes the term that all they were doing were, essentially they were blaspheming. They were blaspheming the Son of Man. They're reviling him is the word. They were mo- the mockery of Jesus, treating him as anything less than the Son of God, anything less than who he is, what he deserved to be treated. What is a sense as a form of blasphemy? And in the world today, while people may not mock Jesus like uh, these soldiers did, when we can still be guilty of, of mockery of him and bla- blasphemy of him. When we believe something less of the Son of God, and we don't acknowledge Him for who He actually is, then that is a form of blasphemy. You know, we could actually think of Jesus as being a, a great philosopher. His His word, you can go to any university, and you probably find some class on Jesus as a philosopher, the philosophy of Jesus, or the the He'd be listed as one of the great philosophers of the world. One could also think of him as a great prophet, as some of the other world religions might think of Jesus as if he was a great prophet, or even that many people might just think, well, he was a great man. But if that is all that we think he is, then we are essentially denying who he really ultimately is, that he is the Son of God. And to to think of him as something great, as a great philosopher, great prophet, great man, but not recognize him as the Son of God is blasphemy. And people today still mock Jesus in that way. And what's more, even in our world, around our world, people still beat him as these soldiers did. And whatever evil men do to Christ's people, we read about it in in other countries, in in other countries around the world, where Christians are being killed, are being beaten, are being raped, are being robbed of their livelihood, beheaded even. Whatever they do to Christ's people, they do to Christ. As Jesus said to Saul, the persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Saul was persecuting the church, but when he persecutes the body of Christ, he is persecuting Christ himself. And when people persecute the church today, they are not persecuting just the church, they're persecuting Christ still. And that reflects the continued blasphemy against and mockery and, uh, of, against Jesus. And yet despite all the cruelty of his captors, Jesus, what does he do? And in any moment, the Son of God, call, He could call a legion of angels down. He could just speak, if He will. And all, they would all be judged. But Jesus submitted Himself to the suffering and shame of the verbal and physical abuse of these guards. He uttered no words of protest. He said, no, don't do that. And this, His silence before His shearers, as Isaiah puts it, would make a deep impression upon Peter in his first letter to the churches in Asia Minor who would write these words of Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 21, which we read in our call to worship. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps that Jesus sets for us an example. Who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. We're not innocent, but he is. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats. He was, treated, he was treated with mockery. He was treated with beatings, which is reviling suffering. But what did he say in, back, in return? I'm innocent. Curse upon you. No. He was silent. And he kept instead entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's what Jesus did. Jesus entrusted himself to the Lord God, his Father, and we, who, we find here an example in Jesus for those who, are, who may undergo suffering for Jesus' sake. But moreover, all of us ought to marvel that Jesus would endure all of this, this shame, this suffering. This is a, we marvel at, at His devotion to the Father's will. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And that is, not, it, it include, it is ultimately the death on the cross, but it's all of this as well and everything in between. It is all the Father's will. And he, Jesus submits to it, though it is agony, it is distress. If we were going through the, through it, we would not hold up probably so well. And when we we marvel at the love of Jesus for his father, that he would submit to his father's will. We marvel at the love of Jesus for the world, that he would endure all the shame and suffering, ultimately to go because the cross is where he was headed. And he went to the cross, not because he had to, but he did so because we needed him to. We needed him to. All of this, Jesus endured. We have learned, in conclusion, of how Jesus endured the suffering and shame of the cross. We've learned of his betrayal, his denial, his mockery. And these facts are grounded in history. They truly happened. And our belief, our theology, derives from what actually took place in history. We have the source documents right here in the scriptures recorded for us in countless thousands of manuscripts. There's no question about the reliability of what has been transmitted to us. And the historical sources all attest that this Jesus of Nazareth willingly endured suffering and shame through betrayal by his own Denial by his most vocal disciple. And mockery beating by those who guarded him. So and so many more terrible things to come. Including ultimately crucifixion on the cross. And what is so what is our explanation for why he did this? Either he is mad, insane. Or he is mistaken. He's wrong. Which is what the world believes or he is the Messiah as the scriptures in God foretold. Which which choice do you hold to? What do the facts bear out? What fits with reality? there's really no neutral ground in this you can just say oh, I don't know the historical source right here you can look for yourself consider the reliability of all these documents and the the choice is yours though to make as you consider what god has brought has stated before us what has recorded throughout history for us thousands of years for us down to this day we can have the reliability of knowing what actually took place that jesus did endure the shame and suffering and so the question is why 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 do you say so why do we say so let us make our choice and choose to acknowledge that he is the messiah And because He is the Christ who died on the cross for our sins to take away all our sins, let us choose every day to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him. He died for our sins and rose from the grave so that we might be saved. For if anyone's out there who has not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, will you put your faith in Him today? Will you turn from your sins and will you repent and follow Jesus who died in your place? And that all of us who have believed upon Christ might respond as the old hymn goes. In that old rugged cross, stained with blood so divine. A wondrous beauty I see. For t'was on that old cross, Jesus suffered and died. To pardon and sanctify me. So I'll cherish the old rugged cross. Till all my trophies at last I lay down. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for revealing to us more of who Jesus is, reminding us that what the suffering and shame that he endured, and Lord, as we look to your scriptures, we are reminded once again that which you have all laid upon our hearts to to understand that this is no madman, this is no mistaken man, this is truly the Messiah, this is the Christ who in fulfillment of the scriptures, all the old testament scriptures, came to bring salvation and forgiveness of sins and our sins, and we who believe in him will continue to cling to the cross of Jesus Christ as our only hope for the future. Well, Lord, we thank you, Father, for your love manifest in Christ. We thank you for Jesus, for Jesus, your Son, whom you sent to give us life for our for our sins. Thank you, Father, for our forgiveness. Thank you, Lord, for receiving us back when we betray, when we deny. Yes, even when we mock you, Lord. Thank you, Father, that there is forgiveness in Christ. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.